Hi, this is Brittany Hartley. Today I'm the guest host for Mormon Discussions. And Bill and I have been friends since the very beginning of this podcast. Recently, a few weeks ago, Bill posted on Facebook about his recent hiatus from the church, his interaction with his current bishopric, and he hosted questions about where he is in his current faith journey. And on that Facebook post, he got over 200 comments because there were a lot of people who find themselves where Bill is and um, wanted to know how he's currently navigating his faith and his relationship with the Mormon Church. So I thought it would be helpful for all of us to do a podcast where I play 20 questions with Bill, and I use him as a kind of case study for what a faith journey can look like on a practical level. And I wanted to do this because for those of us who have experienced faith crisis, we often hear language like, you know, you can navigate your own relationship with the church, you need to set boundaries or claim your inner authority, but it can be difficult to see how that works on the ground in someone's actual life. So my hope is that by talking with Bill and asking these questions, it allows you, the listener, the space to navigate your own answers. Because when you are raised in the church, you're given this false dichotomy that the church is either 100% true or it's a sham and it's 100% false. And it makes it seem like your options are either to be, you know, an ex-Mormon critic of the church or Molly Mormon, who's totally on board with everything. But for those of us who have experienced a faith transition, we know that it's not so black and white. So I hope as Bill answers these questions for himself and shows how he's navigating the gray it gives you, uh, the listener, permission to do the same in your faith journey. So without further ado, here's Bill Real. Bill, say hi. First, thanks a lot, Brittany. Hi to everybody who's listening. I'm just grateful for this chance to kind of sit down with you. As you pointed out, you're, you've been listening to the program since the very, very beginning. I think like episode one or two, I get a message from you. Um, and and you, have, you and I have had chances to, to meet in person um, you were in an event in St. George with Thomas McConkie where I was at, and we had a chance to spend a weekend. Uh, just, again, grateful to have this chance to sit down with you and really respect you as a human being and, and this chance for you and I to have a conversation for the listeners to maybe see a few of the ways in which I, I do things or process things. Uh, just appreciative for this conversation, and so I'm looking forward to it. I, I will preface one thought, which I was sharing with you off the off the air which is that I'm going to try really hard today to be really vulnerable and authentic because I think the listeners deserve that. And at the same time to recognize like there's folks who are ready to pounce if I just say the wrong thing. And so I'm going to, I'm hoping I'm asking for sensitivity from both sides as I try to kind of share my journey as, as you kind of throw some of these questions out at me, but it was, I'm, I'm ready to go whenever you are my friend. And we, as one of your longtime listeners, uh, really appreciate how, how vulnerable you've been with your faith journey and how it's helped us um, with our faith journey. So I really appreciate your ability to do that. And here we go. Um, so the first thing that I just want to lay out, so you recently announced that you were taking a hiatus from attending church. Um, and I just wanted to start out, what was the main impetus for that decision? So my family dynamic is, obviously everybody's family dynamic is interesting. Everybody's family dynamic is unique. And what makes my family dynamic unique is that my wife and my children have been in some ways on the same journey, but 
not connected to my journey. And what I mean by that is that my my wife has been right there with me, and my children have been questioning their own things, but not because I'm going to them and trying to disrupt their belief or their faith. I'm I'm pretty reserved and quiet within my home in terms of all the pain and trauma that I'm carrying with Mormonism. And while I've taught my children to be critical thinkers, and my wife certainly sits back and watches kind of things unfold in front of her, and because of the podcast, she's had this chance, and we'll get to this later because I saw one of your questions, it's about her, she's had this chance to sit with people and to talk with people who are on these journeys. Um, my, my whole family kind of disconnected from Mormonism before I did. And I was kind of the last one hanging on and wanting to go and wanting to make a difference. Um, And I remember waking up, this would have been December. I think the last time we went was the first Sunday in December of 2017. And I remember the first morning we don't go, I wake up in my, my bed. It's time to get ready for church. My kids don't want to go. My wife no longer sees the healthiness of attending And I look over at her and I say, I'm not making a difference there. And so we sit and we talk about that. And what that means to me is that I've always wanted to make, to to be a part, to play a part in making Mormonism better and healthier. And when I was back in Ohio, because I had converted to that ward, because I had served as the bishop in that ward, and I know I'm giving a really long answer to this question, I served as a bishop to that ward I had a lot of street cred there. They knew me as the guy who was who had who had read everything and had devoted his life to this thing and would show be the first one to show up if your family was moving and the first one to show up if you were in the hospital. And I could have stayed there forever because of the friendships and the safe space that would have been there for me to to speak up. So I moved to southern Utah and these people don't know me. And I'm just not having the effect in the ward that I want to have to make this place a healthier place. And so I realized, like, this is causing trauma to me. It, it's, it's giving me headaches every Sunday. It's causing my hands to shake every Sunday. And, uh, and, and yet I, it's not having any kind of benefit inside that building. And so I just look over at my wife and I say, I'm not making a difference there. It's not worth the emotional energy, it's not worth having a heart attack at 55 years old to put my foot down and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and keep trying to impact this, this place, this space. And, and so I just said, I'm not going to go today. And for everybody else in my home, that's, they've been waiting for that patiently for some time. Um, I was kind of the last one to say, yeah, this is just too unhealthy right now. And, and so our family, again, has stepped back and and I'll say that we're going to probably step back indefinitely until and if Mormonism can ever become a safe space and I'm I'm highly doubtful that it can do that. And and so I guess that's my best way to frame your first question, Brittany. That's so interesting because there's so many, you know, post-Mormon or however you want to call yourself uh faith crisis Mormons who still attend, you know, because their children attend and their wife attends. So it's interesting to see that as your wife and children have made their own shifts that you as a family were able to shift away. That's so yeah. interesting. And, and I should say, um, it, it was necessary in our experience, my family's, 
that my wife and my children disconnect first. Like that, I'm grateful that that's the way it happened because I'm one of these guys that I'll just roll my sleeves up and I'll just jump back into the ring um, and wrestle with this thing indefinitely, even if it's to my own harm. And by them disconnecting first, it gave me the chance to realize like when I'm ready, when this thing is just too toxic for me, like it's safe to step away because they already have. And I think it's beautiful that, you know, you chose your family. And I just think that that's so beautiful on that Sunday, you know, between choosing between church or your family that, you know, you chose your family. Um, so you had some communication with your current bishopric or state president. So tell us how that went and if that went anywhere as you decided to step away. So another thing that really helped facilitate this was that we bought a house and we moved and when you move in Utah, unless you move one house down, you've changed wards, and more than likely you've changed stakes. And uh, and so we moved uh, into a, an adjoining city. We we went from Santa Clara, Utah, to Washington, Utah, which is about a ten or fifteen minute drive away. So we're in a new stake. We're in a new ward, and I'm open. I mean, we've just again we haven't gone for a few weeks as we're preparing for this move, and and as that morning happened that I just shared. Um, but we're still open to to going back if, if someone approaches this the right way. So I reach out to my new bishop and I write him a message and I share with him like, hey, heads up, this is who you're getting into your ward. Um, this is what I do. These are the conversations I have. This is where my focus is. I'd love to have a conversation with you. And what came back and it's and it's easy to see, and again, people can can criticize for saying like you don't know somebody's mind, you don't know somebody's heart. But this, when this bishop writes back, it's obvious that he's um, nervous or hesitant to want to jump into the things that I'm sharing with him. And it's obvious that on some on some level, it's like I'm your bishop, so I'm I'm going to care about you and I'm going to care for you, but this makes me uncomfortable and I'm going to do so from a distance. Um, I also reach out to my stake president, who is a f- who is a co-worker uh, of a really good friend of mine, and so there's some level of relationship there, even without having met this man. And uh, his response back is, and he had just been called as a stake president, just like the week I message him. He goes, "I've got a lot of things on my plate. There's other things I need to to kind of finish up and take care of from the former stake presidency." But when I've got that all cleared up, I'll uh, I'll reach out to you. And the he hasn't really done that yet. Um, maybe he's still really busy. But I also sense like this guy's gone through some of these this questioning, and he's in a place still where he's very loyal to the church. He's still very uh, very much a believer, but he's edged into some of these issues, and he knows they get really messy really fast. And so I sense in him a hesitancy as well to want to dive into these conversations with me. And so essentially they've left left us alone, which is neither good nor bad. I'm okay with either them leaving us alone or them reaching out to us. I'm fine. Um, the, the bishop did try to stop by once. We were out of town and just didn't get back in time. Um, but that's the only physical visit that, that those two have tried to make. Um, it's just been interesting. I think people in 2018 sense 
that there's some real messiness in the church that they never would have had to have dealt with before. Like we have entered a new age where every member of the church realizes that there's parts of our history that are really problematic somewhere deep down, even if they haven't confronted that yet. And so everybody seems to be walking on eggshells when they encounter somebody else who's been exposed and wants to talk about these things. And I sense almost the entire church kind of tiptoeing around going like, I don't want to open that door. I'm not sure what's behind there. And so everybody seems to be really careful about who they talk to and what they talk about. And I think that's been part of why we've just been completely left alone. I think all of us post-faith crisis have sensed that uh, with people where I sense that even for me, I sense that people, you know, care about me. But, you know, if I ask, hey, will you sit down with me and sit with my pain with polygamy and just sit down with me? And I sense that, oh, that makes me too uncomfortable. And I, you know, I can't, I can't do that. Um, And so I, I think we all kind of sense that, that if I continue to talk to you, I might lose faith in the church or something. And so my care only goes, you know, to banana bread, giving you banana bread. And that's basically all that I can care right. for you. It's, it's almost like if you've seen the video from Brene Brown where somebody who has sympathy asks, you know, do you want a sandwich? Um, the casseroles that we as Latter-day Saints take to each other, that's that sympathy. And I think you've hit it on the head that there's this real reluctance to try and have empathy because empathy might have me ending up in the hole with you. And I don't want to be there. Right. And so it's easier to stand on top of the hole with sympathy, to drop off a gift, to send you a card, to ask you how you're doing, but to really not want an answer. Um, I think we in, inside Mormonism, we're really good at sympathy, um, but I think we struggle deeply with empathy. I understand that. So tell us, um, you know, without completely speaking for your lovely wife, who, who I've also met. And when I first met your wife years ago, she was very supportive of your faith journey and your podcast and what you do, but she was, she didn't seem at the time as interested in some of the, you know, historical things that you got into as, as, as you were. And so she actually announced on Facebook also that she was experiencing a faith shift. And so if you could speak for her briefly, um, what was the catalyst for her change and how was that different than yours and then also, how has your marriage uh, changed as she's uh, faith transitioned as well? This is, my, uh, this is my favorite question on the outline you sent. Because my wife has just, and I'm, I don't want to, uh, my wife has been supportive every step of the way. It's like, when I first started going through this faith crisis, I was so scared what it would mean to our marriage because I'd read so many horror stories. And from the very second that I bring her into what I'm going through, she is lockstep right there with me, supportive. Uh, You're right, Brittany. She doesn't care about the history. Like what we did in the past, she doesn't care. It's not that um, it doesn't bother her or that she doesn't sense it's problematic. It's that history isn't interesting to her. And so what's been um, her motivation through this whole journey for why she shifted And at some point, we'll sit down with her. I've had so many listeners write in and say, you know, we want to hear from your wife. We want to hear her story. And and I've approached her numerous times and said, hey, do you want to do do this? And she's always like, I don't know. I'll let you know when I'm ready. I'm not, I don't know. Um, She's always hesitant. I'm I'm always, you know, I'm the the person who 
wanted to buy a microphone and talk, and she's more of one who wants to sit in the background and listen to other stories and not necessarily throw in her own. But what's been my wife's impetus for change has been her sitting down with people who are different. And from very early in our uh, marriage, we've, we've taught our children to always find the kid who's sitting by himself at the lunch table. Always find the kid who's excluded by the group, and you go sit by them, and you put your arm around them, and you say, I'm here, and I'm your friend. And my kids have done that. Um, and so my wife has always been sensitive to people who are on the margins, and she's suffered her own traumas in, in her life, things that have deeply shaped how responsive she is to these kinds of things. And um, as she has sat with LGBT people, uh, LGBT people from our church, as she has sat with people who have had um, deep and painful faith transitions, as she has sat with people who want nothing more than to belong, but to belong authentically, and the church doesn't fully welcome those people, as she's heard their stories, it has deeply impacted. Like She just will not tolerate somebody being taken advantage of or marginalized or hurt by somebody who thinks they're more powerful or more influential. And, and so the entire way along my journey, there's never been a point where she's like, you know, Bill, you're wrong. But at the same time, she's never dived into the history. She simply sat by listening to all these stories and she realizes there's something deeply unhealthy, something deeply toxic to two people who love each other being vulnerable with each other about their life experience. And when I say two people, her and her parents, her and her siblings, her and her friends, like there's something that stops you from fully opening up to somebody else within this tribe and saying like, here's my experience. And so she senses that. Um, in terms of our marriage, Brittany, it, it never been better, like a, like a hundredfold better. Like every day, her and I are talking to each other about how amazing uh, this relationship that we have, what it's developed into. And we are both, and again, I hope people are understanding some of these things I'm kind of rambling about. When you're young, you deeply shield yourself from your significant other in ways you maybe don't even comprehend till later in life. And you, you want them to see certain parts of yourself, and you want them not to see certain parts of yourself. And you also sometimes use manipulative tactics to try to get the other person to conform to what you want them to be. And on this side of the journey, um, we are just in love with the person that's in front of us. We're not trying to uh, compel that person to be something else. We're not trying to shield ourselves from each other. It is like a completely open, vulnerable honest, transparent relationship. And man, does that have its rewards. And so our marriage is as good as it ever, ever, ever has been. Um, I wouldn't trade what I've got right now for anything else. It has just been amazing. <clears throat> That's so beautiful. Um, I really do hope that she uh, goes on your, on your podcast and, and that she can share her story. Um, because, you know, a lot of people had a faith transition because of his, you know, history things, and but whenever you spend significant time in the margins, 
there's just no way to avoid taking on some of that pain as your own. Um, and I would just love to hear her story, but it's just so beautiful how your marriage, you know, is, is where it is now. And I'm just so happy for you guys, um, that you're able to be more authentic. Do you find that your marriage is also more egalitarian since, since, uh, disconnecting from the church? Yeah, I, um, when we first got married, I was very patriarchal, um, very much imposing the priesthood in, especially early on, like, like I preside here. I'm the one who gets to make the final decision. Like I knew that thought inside my head and I wanted to carry it out. And it didn't take long before those sharp edges start to get rounded off because you see how much hurt you're causing directly. So, so as our marriage progresses, it becomes much more subtle. I'm doing it in ways that don't directly cause her to cry, but it's still imposing uh, authority. It's still imposing stewardship and, uh, and patriarchy. And the moment this crisis got to a certain point where I was on a deep level willing to question why we do things the way we do them, um, that shift starts to, like, like something changes, something moves and her and I are both responsive to, to that impetus. Um, so when I look, go fast forward to today, here we are, May 15th, 2018. And I don't sense, I mean, I, I could be wrong. I, I'd you know, love to have my wife answer this, but I don't, I don't sense really any level of patriarchy in our home anymore. Like, we are two equal people. We are two people with distinct gifts. Those gifts do not necessarily match uh, what the church teaches about gender roles. What is, what is this woman supposed to bring to the table and what is this man supposed to bring to the table? Rather, just to recognize like we do have separate, distinct, unique gifts. We do different things well and not so well. And it's been fun to kind of now mesh those together with, with no sense of one person holding any higher standing than the other in terms of authority within our home. Um, so yes, I think things are a much more, much more balanced. I'm sure once in a great while that patriarchy still comes out. Um, but I, th- I think my wife would also say that, that things are really uh, balanced and fair and equal uh, in the way that the two of us operate within our relationship now. So on Facebook, you had a lot of people ask, well, if you're out now, and there was maybe a critical tone to some of these questions that you asked this question. Um, you know, if you're out now, why don't you just resign, remove your name from the church and move on? And, you know, there's always this sense that, you know, if you're going to be negative towards the church, just leave it alone. So what would be your reason or what would you, your response be for why have you chosen not to resign? So... For me, like Mormonism is my tribe. And even if I've become disaffected with what I thought my tribe stood for, what I thought it meant, what I thought was true about the way in which the supposed wise elders of our tribe interpreted what it means to be a member of our tribe and what our tribe stands for, it's still my tribe. And so if we take the religious aspect out of it for a moment. And we just like think of it in some other way, picture some other tribe in the, the world that you belong to. 
And suddenly you wake up as an adult and you realize like there's unhealthiness in this tribe. And we tell stories about ourselves that are not accurate. And we cause hurt and harm and trauma, which is the truth of any tribe that's in this world. That doesn't mean you leave that tribe and you go to another tribe or you, or you disconnect completely and just, you know, decide to move your tent out into some soul, solo space and, and occupy it alone outside of any group. So I don't think it's fair for people to say, like, you should resign. I'm going to stand up and raise my hand and say there's something not healthy here. And there's something deeply inaccurate about the way we tell our story. And I'm not going to participate in institutional uh, Mormonism at the moment. But this is still my tribe. This is still my group. This is still the family I belong to. And so until this family tells me I'm not allowed to be here anymore then then I'm going to still be a member of this tribe. And I've thought about this as I've, I've now been essentially inactive for five, six months now. And I've thought a lot of times like, hey, do I want to resign today? And there's not a single piece of me deep down that wants to do that. And so I don't have any intentions to do that. I can't see how that would happen um, because this is, this is my family even if there's problems here. Awesome. Um, so then if you were to be, so you've, you've known for quite some time that the church has a file on you, so to speak, and, well, maybe even a literal file on you. And if you were to be excommunicated from the tribe at some point, would that still, even though you're inactive now, would that be a really painful process um, if that were to happen and if it were to happen, what would you think that it would be for? So I don't know how I, what's that? Cause it's always been yeah. a possibility and you've been aware yeah. that, you know, by having, by doing your faith journey online, that you were at risk for that. You knew that for right. a long time. I would even say more than a possibility at this point, I would say anticipated, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it's going to happen sooner or later, Unless, and I, and I think this has happened to some extent, by the way, I think that there is a line, right? There's, there's this invisible line, and, and that line is fluid. At different times in the church's history, you could, uh, you could, you would have more space to say critical things than other times. And when I look back maybe five years ago, and some of the folks that were excommunicated at that time, I could see kind of where that line was. Like, we'll, we'll tolerate your agitation for a little while. And then if you say, you know, ABC, then that's, that crosses the line and somebody higher up, even in spite of the fact that we say we don't do this, somebody higher up goes to the local leadership and says, now's the time we have to sit down with this person. Um, I sense that for whatever reason in the last, from five years ago to today, today that line has drastically moved. And I don't know whether the brethren perceive that it does more harm than good when you excommunicate people like John DeLynn or Kate Kelly, um, Jeremy Runnels, I don't know if they've learned from that, that it does harm. I don't know if other things going on in the news right now says, hey, we just don't want to add any extra story that we don't need to. I don't know what the reason is, but I feel like I've been as honest about the messiness here as one can be. And I don't think that level of honesty has been accepted any time in our past. But for some reason right now, they're at least tolerating it. Um, 
if I'm excommunicated, Brittany, and again, I anticipate it, but again, I also hope it never happens. If, if I'm excommunicated, I don't know how I will, I will emotionally respond to that. Like, I'd like to think like, oh, it gave me some closure and now I can move on and, and maybe it'll be well received. On the other hand, I look at other people who've been excommunicated and they look back and say like, yeah, it was much more traumatic than I expected it to be. So I also want to lean on their experience and say like, if it happens, I, 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 I see additional trauma, potential trauma, potential um, harm coming to a human being through that process and, and that I'm not excluded from that. So I don't know what to expect. Um, I will say that my life now, and we'll get, into, we'll get into this, but my life now is very full of good, healthy relationships that it scares me that some people would go through this process and not have somebody to lean into. And, and I've got literally six to 10 people within my immediate reach of relationship who are on the same space I am and are deeply supportive of my work uh, and my journey and my, and my relationship with them, that I have that kind of support waiting if that ever happens. Um, and I think that'll be a huge help. But again, I, I can only also anticipate that there would be added trauma and harm to me that comes through that process. And I think for all your listeners, that would be really hard to watch as well um, because you've provided hope for so many along their faith journey. Um, I hope it never happens, but I know that it's, it's something that, that very well could. Um, did you experience any deep, and when I talk about shame or guilt in the church, sometimes it's so deep that it's almost subconscious. When you didn't go to church on that Sunday, was there any you know, really deep down in your subconscious, last shreds of guilt or shame um, of not being celestial material or what if I'm wrong or this or that? Um, or do you feel like you avoided some of that shame because you were a convert and maybe it wasn't, you know, as nailed into you as maybe if you were a child growing up in the church? Oh, that's, man, that's a good question. Um I'll start, maybe I'll start by working backwards. The morning that we decided, and I say we as a family, even though it really came down to this finally me making also the decision that the rest of the family had already gotten comfortable with. When I made that decision from that second forward, no, no guilt, no shame in saying like, this is too unhealthy at this point. I'm going to step back for my own good, my own peace. But if I work backwards 10 seconds before that decision, yes. And two weeks before that decision, yes. And there are still parts of this journey, even in the here and now, that are that bring shame. And I'll, I'll give one example. Um, I've got really wonderful in-laws. My father-in-law and mother-in-law are the salt of the earth. They are just beautiful people, deeply caring, deeply just solid, just solid people. And... Uh, our relationship is now strained and it's strained because I'm sure in their mind, they blame me for our entire family, their, their daughter, their grandchildren being disconnected from Mormonism. There's no safe space to sit down and say like, here's our journey. Can you, can you just sit with us and hear this journey? And you don't have to agree with it, but can you understand like how we saw this process and, and how these 
things started and what led from one step to another so that you can understand like the parts each of our members of our home played in this transition. And as you well know, there's just no space for that. But you want nothing more than that. You want nothing more than to sit down with those you love and just get validation, just be honored for being a human being on a human journey. And very few people inside the believing perspective are capable of sitting with that. So there's been this strained relationship of like, essentially like we love you and we, we want to be close to you, but if close means we have to sit with this, then we can't do that. And, and so these two people who I love immensely, it's, it's like I live on an island and there's no telephone. Like there's no way, like you, you love these people and you miss these people and you want to be a part of their lives, but there's no way to reconnect that. And I've tried, like I reach out in messages and say, like, I don't need you to agree with me. I just want you to hear us. And initially you'll sense that, okay, we'll give that a shot. And very quickly you sense like, no, I think, I think I'll keep my distance. Um, And so when you have a story to tell and you have people you love that you want to share that story with, and those people can't sit with your story, then within the tribe, shame comes in because you wonder what do they think about you and do they think you're less than, and do they, has there, and and again, Mormonism has taught them to keep their distance from me. We, We have tons of quotes from leaders that say not to trust those so-called loved ones, those so-called friends. So when, when the tribe teaches its members to not trust anybody with an alternative story, then anyone with an alternative story feels shame because their story isn't trusted by the people they love and need validation from the most. I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a powerful tool. I mean, I'm, I'm 32 and not that this podcast is about me, but I was, I was in a meditation and I felt deep down the last few shreds of shame of what if I'm wrong and what if I go to the judgment bar and God says you weren't valiant enough in, in my testimony. And I, I actually had to have an experience where that was taken from my body and God just saying, you need to let this go. And, you know, I'm 32 and I've, I, I was raised in the church and it takes a long time to, to kind of let that shame go because it's very powerful. It's a very powerful tool, um, that Mormon has Mormonism has, and that, you know, communities have to, to keep the community intact. And, and, uh, it's deep, deep stuff. It's deep. First off, this podcast is about all of us, Brittany. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about all of us. Like this is our journey. And this has been the space, one of the spaces that's been, and again, I don't like look at this arrogantly like, yeah, I created this space, but like this podcast, I know from the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails that I've gotten, I think thousands at this point from people who say like, Bill, thank you for doing this. You give me the one space where I can explore these kinds of ideas and I can feel validation and not feel crazy. Um, This podcast is about all of us and it always has been. And there are other spaces like it out there, but I'm grateful to be one of those. Um, and what you just shared is we all feel that. Like we all feel 
this tribe having implemented mechanisms that paints anybody who doesn't fit in the tribe as bad. And so the moment we don't fit in the tribe, we are somehow edged out of it, either by our own conscience or by others pushing us away. And then the tribe from within says like, yeah, your story is no longer as valid as ours. And that just sucks and it hurts. Um, And I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to bridge these relationships. I don't know how to take your mom or your dad or your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, your brother or your sister or your best friend or your child. I don't know how to, to implement new mechanisms that cause us to come back together and to just sit with each other and to just listen and to just honor our, each other's stories and to leave some space for a piece of us to change through that listening. Um, I wish I knew that secret and I don't. Yeah, I, I wish I did too. It was just surprising to me because I've been on the margins for so long that I, I didn't think that I carried any shame or guilt. And then, you know, to really reach down and say, yeah, you know, it was still there. Um, you know, it's a reminder of how painful it is when these relationships change. So I want to talk about your children for a second as much as you feel comfortable, because often with faith transitions, especially if one uh, spouse is, is changing differently than the other, you don't know what to do with your children. So so Mormonism for you um you know, it was your tribe. It uh, brought you together with your wife. It's been such a huge part of your spiritual journey. It gave you, you know, identity in your early sp- in your early spiritual journey, and then it gave you strength as you, you know, broke the bonds of your limitations in your later spiritual journey. And so the question is: Do you give your children the same journey, the same opportunity to have that journey through Mormonism? that you had in order to get where you are, where you're a spiritually independent person, or do you remove them from that journey? Because, you know, Mormonism, as far as moving from stage three to four to five, is very painful, is a very painful place to be. And do you do you remove your children out of it? And so how did you approach, you know, your children have been with you a little bit, But what if, you know, let's just imagine your children were junior primary age and were just starting their spiritual journey. Um, Would you have removed them from their opportunity to kind of move through Mormonism? Or do you think that you would have allowed them to stay as long as they wanted to stay? And how would you have done that? Um, So I think the more you sit with people who are on the edges of our tribe, either the just that inside edge or even that outside edge, the more you sit with those folks, the more you, you come to grips with just how unhealthy and how toxic parts of our faith are, how, how much we are resistant to being vulnerable to that unhealthiness and to addressing it and just letting it sit there. Because if we talk about it and we change it, it's going to disrupt others. Um, and so we allow the trauma and the harm to happen. Once we realize, like, the more we sit with those people, and, and that's my own experience, as the more I've sat with these people, I've become more aware of that toxicity. So it's difficult because if I, list, if I, if I try to put my children in that young age again, I also go back to as a parent when I was at a younger place. And I still saw a lot of good in the church. And that good is still there. I've just become aware of the toxicity and unhealthiness. So 
as a younger parent, like I would have valued that good so much that I would have allowed my kids or encouraged my kids to participate while what we did was we taught our kids to be critical thinkers. We taught our kids to question. We taught our kids to put the protection of others and the validation of others over institutional authority. And so our children very naturally grew to question when the church did something, they just wouldn't automatically accept it. They would question like, is that hurting somebody? And if it is, is it necessary? And if it's not necessary, why aren't we doing something about it? And so my kids naturally grew into these deep thinkers who are willing to consider such things. Um, Our 12-year-old, he's our youngest, when he was eight years old, and again, my faith transition was silent in the home at this point. I was doing the podcast, but we were not having these conversations as a family. My 12-year-old, when he was eight, just be, in fact, seven, just before he gets baptized, he's taking the, the missionaries are coming over. Again, I know it's not necessary, but in the, in the West, at least, or in the East, I mean, in the East, at least, in the Midwest, um, out in the mission field, you'll have the missionaries come in and teach your kids so that they can kind of be refreshed on these gospel principles that they've learned their entire lives before they get baptized. And my seven-year-old son looks at the missionaries and goes, what if this isn't true? And what if there is no God? And I had not put that thought into his head, but that's the kind of kids I've got. They're, they're thinking about these deeper things and they're weighing, you know, right and wrong versus authority and what all that means. So I say all that to say, like, this came so natural to us that it's difficult. I don't want to be seen as some expert who's telling another parent how they should handle it. I don't know. My kids fell into this beautifully. Now, I will say this in terms of my children. When you start to let go of the church as an institutional authority in your life, I had a lot of deep worry for what that would mean for my kids. And what I mean by that is, here's this institution that's joining with your voice in helping your kids know like where are lines, what are rules, here's the boundaries. And those things are really important and needed in an earlier stage of life. As me and my wife are going through our own transition, we're developing that inner authority and we no longer need those rules and boundaries like somebody who's in ethnocentricity does. And as we begin to let go of those rules and boundaries um, as social constructs, we worry that our kids are going to sense that rules and boundaries are not important. And so first off, there's this fear inside us that, oh my goodness, our kids now may make really bad choices and we may look back and regret having had this distance between us and the church because our kids are going to now, you know, turn out to be this, 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 and this, and you come up with the worst scenarios in your mind. So that's the fear. The second part is what actually happens, which is twofold. One is that, yes, your kids are going to make mistakes. Your kids are going to make choices that don't benefit them uh, long-term. And one of our children, one of our four kids, I won't say which or even gender, one of our four kids began making some really bad choices. And this child began skipping school. This child began um, trying new substances. This child began being uber rebellious within our home. 
Um, and for a while, we were like, we like didn't know if we had made a mistake. Like, uh oh, maybe we should have stayed solid in the church and and somewhat pretended that we fit in the tribe better till this child was older. Um, and again, I don't speak for any other parent. My situation is unique. So if someone can learn from it, great. If there's nothing here, then toss it aside. But as we sat with that rebelliousness and it didn't last long, it lasted maybe four months and it gave us a lot of worry. This, this kid, um, ran away, uh, for a short time, uh, scared us to death. And it finally got to a point where I took this child's, uh, doors off their room. Uh, we took all the things out of their room. We gave them very limited privilege and it, it wasn't so, I mean, it, it, I don't, I didn't really see it as punishment. I saw it as like, your life is out of control and I need to remove some of these things so that you can sense like how much other people in the world help to make your life easier. And it seemed really quickly at that point that this child turned their life around. They began to sense the love that their parents had for them. And they began to sense how serious this fork in the road was. And so now I fast forward, it's about a year later at this point, maybe eight months later. And this child is so responsible now. This child is making really good decisions. Um, and I'm sure this child and my other children and all of your children will, will make more mistakes but I thought this moment was going to go one direction. And usually when we plan out our life, how things are going to go, good or bad, those almost are never the things the way they occur. That just don't happen that way. And so this kid very quickly responded and um, began to take on added responsibility and to make good choices with that and has learned from that process to the point where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm as concerned for this kid as anybody is for any other children, but not any more concerned. And, and as we've stepped back from the church, there's this fear that not having the church will mean lots of negative things for your children in terms of their values and their morals. And here I am now five, six months removed from distancing myself from the church, but my children are probably at least a year in from having distanced themselves from the church. And all of our kids are doing well and they're thoughtful and they're responsible, um, and they're just good kids. And so I'm, I'm not, in my own journey, my own story, I'm not concerned about what this has done bad for my kids, and I'm appreciative of the added good that's come into their lives as they've taken these new steps in their own journey. So how do you plan on, um, at this point, guiding your children through their you know, spiritual journeys and giving them a spiritual life because that's a fear of a lot of parents is if I leave the church they won't how do I how do I guide their their spiritual nature so how have you and your wife decided to um you know ha- have spiritual things in the home where they can you know grow a spiritual life however it looks like for them yeah and that's i think it's a hard question to answer um i'll i'll tell you what we do and I don't know if it meets that need or not. So one is that we have open and honest conversation. And I know that seems like that's a completely separate thing from spirituality, but I don't think it is. Um, we talk openly about the things that we're learning, my wife and I, about relationship, about social constructs, about big questions um, in the universe. And 
we're also like taking the other side of that is we're taking our children places where we can sit and see beautiful things and reflect. And again, I don't know if this directly meets that spiritual need. I mean, we're not going to other churches. We're not, you know, going to some Buddhist meditation thing once a week. We've done, we've gone with friends and done some yoga on one occasion. We've gone on hikes. We've just this last Sunday, we took our entire family uh, for Mother's Day, took the wife and the kids over to a, a small lake called Quail Lake. And we just walked around and looked at the water and some of the kids took their shoes off and went a few feet in and just kind of being with each other in beautiful places within nature. And, and so I keep saying this, I don't know if that meets that need and I'm sensing like that needs important, but I'm also sensing like it isn't and that our children, if taught to appreciate the mystery in the universe and conversations are around that mystery in the universe, I think these kids will figure out their own way in which they make those connections. And I don't want to impose the ways in which I'm making those connections onto my kids. Um, And so there's a lot more ambiguity around spirituality, but also a lot more directness around just talking about life and the mystery in it. Um, And I hope those two things come together to provide what you're getting at, but I don't know if it does. So I want to play pretend for a little bit, and I want to imagine that tomorrow, you wake up tomorrow, there's a press release from the church, and it announces three things. And after they announce those three things, you decide, you know what, it feels a lot more spiritually safe. I think I'm going to attend church today. What would be those three things? Um, the answer is actually simple. I'm just trying to figure out how I frame this because I, I, I don't think the church is going to do any of these. No, um, it wasn't, but I want to sure. play pretend. So let's pretend for a moment <laughs> for the church to become a healthy space for me to re-engage. And I don't get to determine whether it's healthy for my wife to re-engage. And I don't get to determine whether it's healthy for my children to re-engage. They would decide that on their own. But for me to re-engage, it would need to be one – they would have to um, vocally express in a serious way that they realize that they've been the worst entity at interpreting their history. Like if I ask you, Brittany, seriously, like of all the people who are discussing Mormonism and its history and the messiness and the problems, what has been the worst entity at interpreting that data? And it's been the church. The church is the worst place to go for an honest, authentic, uh, historically accurate telling of its story. So Mormonism would have to come forward and acknowledge that it's done a piss poor job at telling its story worse than anyone, worse than the critics at telling its story and would have to say like, we are going to make an effort starting right now. We're acknowledging it. We want. We need everyone to just understand we have not done a good job at this, and we are going to completely revamp our manuals and, and the way in which we talk and tell our story to be accurate and to not whitewash it um, and to be honest to it. That would be one. Who was it? Who was it that said that Mormonism isn't in a faith crisis? They're in a trust yeah. crisis. That's what 
Yeah, me like Mormonism's this, having a trust, trust crisis, crisis and a truth crisis. Yeah, crisis. and those are both true. Mm-hmm. Um, you, we, we, those of us who have gone through this journey, we feel like it's a faith crisis. It really isn't. It's we have grown, and the tribe hasn't given us any way to do that with validation. So it feels like a faith crisis. In reality, the institution is is what is stagnant. The institution is what is holding. Uh, the rest of us back from from feeling healthy in that growth. Um, so the history is that first one. The the second one is to create a a true safe space for questions. And yes, we give rhetoric to it at times, but it is not a healthy space because we haven't done the first one. We have imposed to the majority of membership in our church that we do the best job at telling our story. And so when somebody raises questions or concerns about that narrative and about the social repercussions of that narrative, the majority of the tribe looks at that person with disdain, with distrust. um, And that's because the church hasn't done the first one of being honest about it being the worst at telling its story. Once, Once it does that, then the second one opens up, which is a safe space for people to ask really hard questions and for the rest of the room to go, yeah, we, we need to wrestle with that. Um, and, and, and the second can't happen until the first. The third one is the most important to me, but I think it's a natural outgrowth of the first two. And the first two are much bigger general issues. Um, but the third is closest to my heart, which is that we have to, no if, ands, or buts, we have to find a way to recognize those who are different, specifically within the LGBT community. But I also want to reach out to uh, gender equality um, and racial equality as well, and essentially say that anybody who doesn't fit cleanly into the narrative of Mormonism, we have to find a way, if someone is born with that skin color, if someone is born with that gender, if someone is born with that attraction... We have to find a way as a tribe to say you are fully equal with the rest of us. And if the, if the tribe made mistakes in the past, part of creating that equality is admitting the mistakes of the past so that the majority of membership can deal with it and wrestle with it and grow from it. So one is to be open about the messiness of our history and how bad we have been at, inter- at interpreting it. Two is to create a safe space for questions, serious questions, hard questions, and for the tribe to wrestle with them. And third is to find a way to create and and surround it with rhetoric that creates equality around anybody who doesn't fit cleanly into the story of Mormonism. Um, And those three things would have to happen before I could ever um, safely step back into the tribe and feel good about it. Wouldn't that be nice? That sounds like a nice, a nice world. Um, we're playing pretend, I right? I know. <laughs> playing pretend. It just, I just wish, you know, I just wish so bad. Um, before John DeLynn was excommunicated, I know that he got to talk to Jeffrey R. Holland. Um, if you could have an hour, two hours with a member of the 15, who would you want to talk to and what would you what would you talk about of all the list of all the podcasts that we've done if you could sit down with one of the 15 what would what would the one thing be 
Um, first off, there would be members of that 15 that I just absolutely know are going to have no responsiveness to that, that questioning, that conversation. So first off, I'd have to pick somebody who's safe. And, and even, even the safest person in that group, let's take Elder Uchtdorf, for instance, even the safest person in that group um, has been taught by the tribe that authenticity comes second to loyalty. And, and so I would fear going into any of these conversations that there would be little to no re- authenticity, which means little to no vulnerability, which means little to no responsiveness to these questions. Um, but let's assume for a moment that that person is going to break down through the conversation and is going to be open and honest and vulnerable. Um, I would start with that first thing, which is why can't we talk? Why can't we own? Why can't we give rhetoric to the fact that our history has been interpreted the most incorrectly by us inside the tribe. And to get that person to spend, because again, if you're saying I've only got an hour, let's spend some time talking about just how messy this gets and what being open about that messiness, what that causes in others when we have those open conversations, because I think it causes deep reflection and deep growth. And to ask them why they're not. And, and if the answer is that we're trying to perpetuate this institution and by being open about our messiness, it does the most risk and damage to that perpetuation, then that raises a whole other slew of questions that I'm not sure I can even get into in that hour. Um, but If you had that opportunity, would you take it? Yeah, I would. Absolutely. I've always wanted to take that opportunity. I've reached out. So I've, I've shared in the podcast that I've had conversations with general authorities. I've spoken to Elder Holland by phone. I've spoken to Elder Holland by email. I've spoken to Elder Jensen by phone, and I've spoken to Elder Jensen by email. Uh, Elder Holland, the moment my questions got too tough, uh, he stopped responding. And I still asked him in kindness, but also with a sense of like, we can't dodge these. These are real questions and these have real repercussions. At that point, those messages ceased. He just would not respond anymore. Uh, Elder Jensen has continued to be responsive, but at the same time, you can sense he's only willing to go so far, even though he privately inside his head and sometimes even shared privately that he, he goes further in his private life. Now, that's the problem, right? Is that if you can't get somebody to be vulnerable and authentic to what they really think and feel, then we're just kind of dancing around each other and no real work happens. If, if our loyalty to this tribe is more important than our authenticity, then we never really get down to the brass tacks. Um, and, and so, yes, I welcome those conversations, but those men have been taught over a lifetime that their loyalty to the group is way more important than their vulnerability and authenticity. I mean, think about it. How well do we know our general authorities and do they want us to know them that well? And I don't think they do. I think they like the mechanisms that shield them and allow us to create stereotypes in our head about who they are and what they are, because that works in favor of most Orthodox members who hold these men up a certain, as a certain kind of person and these men really don't want us to get to know them on that deep, vulnerable, authentic level. Um, and I, th- I worry that those kinds of conversations never lead to anything deeply productive. And it certainly slows that process down dramatically. Yeah. And it's also why, I mean, 
it's so frustrating that the church asks us, the members, to confess our sins and to forsake them, right? And to uh, be honest about our mistakes and to say sorry. And then at the top levels, we see the exact the exact opposite, right? That the church never apologizes, and uh, that they're asking the members to do something that they themselves, as a church, won't do because they can't they can't go there. Yeah, and there's a watch. There's a there's a quote by John Pauline, which speaks to this, and I just want to read this. It says uh, most religious institutions are stuck at uh, this faithful stage or earlier. And by faithful stage, if anybody knows this development idea, this developmental theory, it's easier to go with Fowler. But this Fowler stage three, most religious institutions are stuck at this ethnocentric stage three level of faith. Um, Pauline says, he says, one reason is that the majority of all followers in a religious institution are relatively new and just beginning the journey themselves. A second reason is that religious institutions over time focus more and more on preservation of the institution rather than on the glory of God. Institutions crave and document all signs of success, but those successes are often measured in human terms more than in God's terms. Religious institutions can come to crave power and wealth as much as any individual but find it even harder to repent than most individuals do. And I find that quote to, to it, it pigeonholes Mormonism into a, a label that I think is very fitting. Um, and I think Mormonism very much struggles to repent of its wrongs because it recognizes that it hurts in some way damages its future power and wealth. I want to talk about what things you still hold on to from Mormonism. So if you were to sit down with just the average Orthodox member, what beliefs would you maybe still have in common? What what common ground would you still have with that Orthodox member? So this is also a difficult question. Um, I was interviewed on Mormon Matters uh, four months ago or so, right about the time, four or five months ago, right about the time we our family went inactive. Um, it was right in the very early part of that. And Dan asked me a similar question, and I really struggled to answer it because I don't hold on to a lot of those um, those definitive things like uh, home teaching or uh, food storage, like anything that's specific like that, that's unique to Mormonism. I just don't really hold on to those things anymore. They don't have any value to me. What does have value to me are general truths that are not only found in Mormonism, are found out in the world, but I learned them in Mormonism. And so some examples are community. Like I think Mormonism does community as well as anybody. And you and I both know that it's deeply ethnocentric. Like you are only in the community as long as you fit in the community. But when you fit, Community is one of the most beautiful things that Mormonism gives somebody. Like you wake up and you know you have people who are your friends. And if something happens to you and you end up in the hospital or you're sick at home or you need a ride, you have people you can call. And out of, out of whatever level that friendship is, they show up and they help. So that sense of community is something I've taken with me and I value community. And like I said, while I am hurt that so many on this journey, they have no one within arm's reach to support with them, to lean with them into this transition. 
I'm very lucky. Um, and I should even say like my boss, who's also like my best friend, my boss is, he brought me out here to Southern Utah to, to work for him, but he was in the same space and he just wanted somebody close by who was going through this journey. And, and so I've come out here and right away I've got this friend and this, this group has, um, deeply expanded so that there is a bunch of us um, who were authentic with each other and we have this closeness and we get together every weekend to go out to dinner and to talk and to laugh and to be at each other's homes and to be involved in, in our children's lives. I'm involved in their children's lives and they're involved in my children's lives. They pick my kid up from school when I can't. Um, I take their kid to work when they can't. Community is so beautiful. Uh, another thing is service, which ties right into that. But not only service for those we love and know and are in relationship with, but service for those that that we don't know and we're not currently in relationship with. And so Mormonism taught me to serve. And while it falls short on who it serves equally, um, I've made an effort in my life to be open to serving those who don't fit, aren't inside the tribe. And so Mormonism's taught me service. It's taught me the value of helping. It's taught me the value of family. Like if we got into a theological discussion at this point, Brittany, I don't know what I could testify of that I know or don't know. I'm open to the mystery in the universe and I'm okay still calling that God. And so I don't know if families are together forever in some kingdom on the other side of the veil, but I do know that family is crucial and important right here, right now. And so I value my children. I value my wife. I value my relationship with them. And I value my opportunity to be there for them in ways that they need their father or their husband to be there for them. And Mormonism taught me parts and pieces of that. And so I've taken that away. Um, and And it's also taught me to value spiritual experience. And so I still deeply within my life seek out, though we would name it differently, we would interpret it differently. um, I I still feel a deep desire to seek after spiritual things. Um, And so maybe those four things are kind of within my grasp of what Mormonism has given me that I still find value in and still see fully expressive within my life. My next question is is very similar after your answer from this one, um, because of all the things that Mormonism does, we do we do community well. It's one of the things that we do well. So I wanted to ask um, a lot of people who uh, you know are not as good at sharing other people's perspectives will say that uh, Mormonism works for me. And so it still must be good and it still must work for everyone. Um, because you and I spend a lot of time with people who are hurt on the margins, but there are a lot of really good people, genuine good people who probably became a better person through Mormonism or Mormonism at some level is working for them or has worked for them. So what would you say on what level does Mormonism work for people? Um, I, I think the two answers come to mind immediately. One is that if you are in ethnocentricity, if being 
part of and fitting in a tribe is an important piece of the ground you hold, which all of us at one time were in that stage. And most of us, meaning the human population, are still in that stage. In ethnocentricity, Mormonism works, as Elder Uchtdorf says, it works wonderfully. Um, it's when the church works out beautifully is when you're in that stage of development where the tribe is your focus and fitting in that tribe is important and the rules and boundaries and laws and commandments of that tribe hold so true to you. So that would be my first one in ethnocentricity. The, the second is when the system rewards you for being an alternative voice outside ethnocentricity. And I don't mean to pick on anybody. I, I hope this doesn't come off as offensive. Um, but if you're a scholar or you're a historian who receives praise for being a voice outside the center of the tribe, but for which still makes space for faithfulness inside the tribe with that alternative voice, then I think Mormonism works pretty well for those people. And you can sense, you pick your scholar, you pick your historian who, I, who I'm describing, and ask yourself, like, does the system reward them for making space inside the tribe for this small, diverse perspective? And what would be at stake if that person decided to, to switch their voice over to saying, like, yeah, I've always said there were problems here, and now I'm going to say like enough's enough. We have to, we have to be better at this. Um, and what would happen to those voices? And so I think Mormonism rewards those folks as well. And those folks find deep benefit by continuing to fit into the system. Um, and so I think Mormonism works well for those two groups. And we could go into all the groups it doesn't work well for. Um, but I think Mormonism gets really difficult when you develop your inner authority, when you are open to seeing the unhealthiness and and when you no longer fit in that ethnocentric perspective. And I think with, you know, with the historians that you were talking about, I think we have proof of that uh, line that they had to walk because when we look at some of the major LDS scholars and we look at their journals and we look at at the end of their life, maybe being a little bit more honest in their journals than they were able to be in their publications and uh, the conflict that that caused for them. I think that that could even be proven um, for those church historians. Yeah. Maybe even to go another step. I always found it odd. Like here we are in 2018 and we know the problems with the book of Abraham. We know the issues with the book of Mormon translation. We know the issues with the book of Mormon witnesses. We understand the, 19th century material that we're now discovering in all of Joseph's translation work. And it's easy today to say like, oh, all the information's on the table. It may not be where you want it to be, but it's there and you can find it and you can talk about it. And But I always ask myself, like, why, why is it only in the last decade or two that voices, I shouldn't even, should even say that, why has it been only in the last five years that voices within our tribe can speak to the messiness of this history directly. And why didn't it happen prior to f these last five years? And as you point out, how deeply unhealthy it is when every scholar that we have private writings from 
who is a faithful voice on the inside, although acknowledging the messiness on some level, each of those voices indicate privately that they can't say publicly what they believe privately. Man, that seems so unhealthy. Mormonism, both through mechanisms said and unsaid, imposes that if you want to be in this tribe, you cannot be fully authentic and vulnerable and discuss these issues and walk their logic out. You are not allowed to do that. And even so you're our yeah. main church historian, even if you have the documents in front of you, you still cannot say it. And that's been made clear, you know, in the relationship between the leadership and the historians for as long, you know, for forever. We have examples of that. So for the remaining hope that you have for Mormonism, because, you know, you still hope the best for Mormonism. You hope that Mormonism makes these changes. And for the people who are still in it, you hope, we hope the best. Uh, we hope that it becomes healthier so that less people are hurt and suffering. Are there people in the church right now who give you hope for the future of Mormonism? That, man, if 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 we could uh, listen to these three people more, um, if if the youth would listen to these three people more, you know, this gives me hope for Mormonism. Who would those people be for you that still give you hope for the future? Um, my answer is only partially connected to your question because you're you're asking, like, what three voices on the inside could if we just if we just figured out a way to implement what they're saying, we could just be a, a, this this much better place. And I'm, I'm struggling with that question because I don't necessarily see three voices on the inside. Like I could point out, say, let's say Terrell Givens, Richard Bushman, and Patrick Mason. But even, but once we recognize that even they aren't telling it like it is because of the pressure within the tribe that's on them that if they want to belong, they have to frame it a certain way, they're not even getting at the heart of the issue. And so listening to them would make Mormonism better, but it wouldn't make it good enough. Um, so for me, you're going to have to look to voices on the outside or the very edge. And so voices like Sam Young, voices like Gina Colvin, voices like Jonathan Streeter or Anthony Miller. And some people won't know those people, but if you're on Facebook, if you're in social media, you'll, you'll, you'll probably know these people. These are people who have been through this faith transition they completely get the messiness. They see the unhealthiness for what it is, and they're pointing right at it and saying, like, you can, you can avoid me, you can dismiss me, you can turn your back on me, but here is our toxicity, here's our unhealthiness, and if we're ever going to be good, we're going to have to come face-to-face -face with this and not whitewash it and not tell it in its most soft um, articulation as as those other voices I mentioned do, we're going to have to get right at it. We're going to have to, as I said earlier, get down to brass tacks and lay these issues on the table, completely peel back the layers of the onion and say, we really screwed up. Here it is. What are we going to do about it? I think those voices are what's necessary. And, and Mormonism is never going to listen to those voices. And yet those are the very voices pointing to the necessary change to make Mormonism a good church. And the people that you named, you know, Gina Colvin and th these other people, those are also people who have, you know, independent 
spiritual authority at this point. They have very individual spiritual journeys, and so their voices would never be even considered valid, which is so sad because, you know, they're the ones who see who see the church for what it is and see where we are. Yeah, they hold their own ground. And in this church, unless you point back to the tribe authorities, you're unacceptable. Your perspective is unacceptable. Um, in reality, those four people I named have a hundredfold more wisdom and insight than, than church authorities who have to walk a line and pretend that things are better here than what they are. So my next question is a little personal, and you can answer it how you want to. Me, myself, if I get a question specifically from a man about garments, I choose not to answer, but that's me claiming my space, saying it's never okay for an older man in authority to ask me about my underwear. And so I'm going to ask you a question that if you asked me, I probably wouldn't answer, and you can do with this what you want. Um some people after faith transition have a hard time knowing what to do with garments, especially women, um, because it's not as easy as, you know, if you're from the Jewish community, you can always wear a Star of David. Or if you are Catholic, you can wear a cross and just say, this is my religious community. But for Mormons, we have clothing and it's also attached to very specific temple questions and it's attached to the temple, which may or may not be triggering. And so it's a little bit more messy than just, you know, wearing a star of David or, or whatever your uh, religious community is. Um, so how have you approached if you feel comfortable wearing garments? So I'm deeply uncomfortable with this question because it's one of those that sets a marker for whether you're in the tribe or out of the tribe. And so having an honest conversation um, is risky in a lot of ways as people listen to this converse, as they listen to this conversation. At the same time, again, as I said at the beginning, I want to try and be honest because I think somebody has to um, open the path with their honesty to make a space for the rest of us to share our truth and not shield ourselves from others. So in terms of garments, um, my, and I'll share my, I think my wife will be okay with this too, um, because we've had these conversations uh, plenty of times in front of people. Um, neither one of us is wearing garments at present. And, and it's, it's, it's for a lot of reasons. And if someone wants, you know, if someone in leadership is made aware of that comment and that bothers them, then by all means, again, to that bishop and that stake president, you're welcome to sit down with me and I'm happy to have those conversations. But our between the two of us, we became less bound to what those things stood for in the context that they were handed to us. Um, and so as we both no longer wear them, it's been a unique um shift for the two of us and very different for the two of us you, as for the reasons you pointed out, which is for a guy to, if, if, as you know, and this is me speaking personally, if I wanted to, which I did, I still wanted that same feel. It was easy for me to go to a clothing store and to get clothing that would give me the exact same feel that those garments gave for a woman. It, that's not really possible. And so if, the woman decides like those garments don't hold me the way they used to. And I want to do something different. I want to do something other than wear those. 
but they are all I've known for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. It's a lot more difficult process for that woman to go out and get something that at first makes her feel comfortable. So my wife would always like have that. We had this joke between the two of us. She's like, it's easy for you. You can just go out and get, you know, white undershirts and, uh, and boxers and you're great. And I can't do that. Now, as we've traversed that space and now where we are right here, right now, um, and I don't want to be like, I don't want this to go down the wrong, like tangent, the wrong road here, but we both have found things that are comfortable for us. And it's actually deeply been part of our uh, improvement within our relationship. Um, the, the intimacy involved between two people who are wearing what they want to wear versus what they're told. It's just, just, it's, there's some liberating thing that happens there. And so my wife feels much better about her own image and, and it's done, um, it's been some huge like piece of improvement within our relationship is for her to get more comfortable with herself and to like herself more in this way. And these, this change in clothing has played a huge part in that. Um, and I hope, I hope again, I'm, I'm trying to choose my words carefully because I don't want it to be seen as the wrong conversation here, but I think a lot of positive comes out of it, even though the initial step is based in fear. Um, our relationship has, it's been a huge factor in a thousand factors of why our marriage is a hundred times better today. We've talked about um, triggering things at church. And I know that spending so much time in the margins, I mean, I've know, I know from listening to your podcast that you carry the pain of so many that you've sat with to the point that you have a level of spiritual trauma that is triggered when you go to church. Was the temple the same for you? Is the temple the same kind of triggering place uh, for you, or was that different? Um, so twice before in this interview, uh, a story has come to mind that I feel is important to share because it makes a connection. And as you were asking that question, it came to my mind again, and I feel like I'm going to run out of places to share this story. And it's not connected to what you just asked, but I want to share it, and then I'll, I'll play off of it into the question you asked. My wife and I were at a retreat um, about a year and a half ago, maybe a year ago. And it was a group of progressive or ex-Mormons. And the entire retreat was around how to, what is the pain we all collectively carry? What is the pain we individually carry? And what can we do to begin to heal through that? And a husband and a wife are there, and I know them, and I know them really well today, knew them less so then, but knew them. And they looked at the rest of us. It was their chance to share in the group. And they looked at the rest of us, and they said, our marriage is perfect. Like, we don't fight. We are deeply in love. We both respect each other. Like, everything about our marriage is perfect, except she's in and he's out. And here's the two of them, and they're, they're, they're tearing up, and they're looking each other in the eyes, and they're communicating to us, the group, that in spite of their marriage being perfect, and in spite of the fact that she is um, 
like deeply loves him. And in spite of the fact that he deeply loves her, this difference of where they both are religiously, um, they said like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. We're going to get divorced. We are, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to hold up. And it's only this one thing, which, you know, in our heads, we think like, ah, it's just three hours a week. It's just three hours on Sunday. She goes, he doesn't great move on and have this wonderful marriage. And yet this tribe and its mechanisms are so influential that, um, that they see this as a breaking moment between the two of them. Like everything else is perfect or near it, but this one thing we can't, we can't survive together. And so we're going to have to get divorced. And this husband and wife, it's actually um, the Jollies, which were just interviewed on, uh, on Mormon stories by John DeLynn. Beautiful story. Everyone should go listen to it. Um, I'm in the room with these two as they're expressing this idea that this one, what we think is this one little component is going to cause the failure of their marriage. Um, but when we take a step back, we realize like, no, that makes perfect sense. This thing is so twisted into, as you pointed out in the beginning of our interview, our identity, our culture, our community, our beliefs. It is so intertwined with all of our sacred cows. So now as I tell that story and I'm looking at the temple, the the temple for me, it's a strange thing. Like I, I don't think that remembering passwords and signs gets me into heaven. I just, I don't believe that. And I haven't believed that for a long, 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 long time. Um, I fully recognize the Masonic uh, parts and pieces that Joseph took and implements to create the endowment. So I realize like it's, you know, has a lot of basis in these things that are really unconnected to the divine. They're just this secular way of conveying information with a story. Um, I'm deeply uncomfortable, especially what, I mean, again, I didn't go when the penalties were in place, but I go to church or go to the temple when there's still like the shield that you wear and people are reaching under the shield and touching your body and, you know, anointing you in different ways than what would happen today. And that was very awkward. Um, I, I recognize that being in the endowment is really awkward. I don't like it. It's a, there's something about the dynamics there that I'm super uncomfortable with. Uh, one of which is that we, we're given an opportunity to walk away before we're told what we're walking away from. And nobody tells you what you're walking away from or what you're getting into, yet you're given this opportunity at the beginning to walk away from it. And by the end, you feel like I was tricked. Like if I knew how awkward all of this was, that not that I would have walked away, but that question would have meant something different to me. And there's no way under the peer pressure of you being there for the first time, having your parents next to you, maybe in my case, you have the, the woman that you're going to be sealed to the next day in marriage sitting next to you. There's no way when that question is asked to have any ability to discern what you're walking away from and to have the power to walk away from it. And yet this institution claims it gave you a chance to do so. It seems, I don't know, it's just an unhealthy interaction in that piece of the endowment. Um, I'm a man, so I'm not, I'm not affected early on by the patriarchy of the temple that friends today have told me. And again, I don't know this cause I'm not there as a, as a female, when you go into certain parts of the temple, you're promising obedience to your significant other 
while your significant other promises obedience to God, that's a very unbalanced relationship. That's not healthy. When you start a man and a woman off in their life on him listening to God and her listening to him, you have created a, a deep unbalance and unhealthiness in relationship. But for me, those things weren't there. I didn't see those things. And so I didn't like the temple. It was awkward. I knew that there were pieces and parts of it that weren't what we claimed them to be. And yet, generally speaking, when I walked away from the temple that day from doing a session within it, I walked out wanting to be a better father and a better husband. There was something, I want to use the word spiritual, but I don't think spiritual is the right word. There's something compelling about the temple for me, and again, I'm not speaking for others, for me that compelled me to want to be a better father and husband. But I saw there's lots of other ways to accomplish that. And in my life today, there are new mechanisms that compel that to happen. Um, So the temple wasn't ever anything that was causing me trauma or shame. Um, But now today I see why it does for lots of others. And I haven't been to the temple in a long time. So I haven't had to try and throw myself back into it and look at it with my present perspective and see if that were different, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's something, the consent, especially. And as a woman, I, you know, the temple was much more traumatic for me because I saw those patriarchal things a lot earlier, but the consent thing and the deep unhealthiness, um, Natasha Helfer Parker talks about a lot that, you know, in my marriage, there's kind of polygamous language, right? And over the altar in my marriage and that I, as a woman never consented to, or was never told about, you know, that my husband receives me and I give myself to my husband and he can receive more. And I can't, you know, how many 19 year old women truly know that, you know, and understand that. And that lack of consent that can be just so deeply damaging. Even, even this idea behind names and signs and tokens, when when your significant other, when the mechanism in place is that you're instructed that it's your it's your male part of your relationship, he is the one who is on the other side waiting to pull you in. Like you need him. He can get through on his own or with God's help, but you need him to enter into God's presence. And and this recognition that you know he knows your new name, but you don't know his new name. Again, there's so many places in the temple where intentionally unbalance is created. And when I look at early Mormonism and polygamy and the mechanisms that are needed to have these women feel encouraged and maybe even a compulsion to sacrifice themselves into these relationships where they are the 17th wife to a man. You can see how the temple is a tool and resource to creating that environment. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. That the temple in many ways was Mormonism's mechanism for helping the women to be subservient to the polygamist request of these men. Um, again, it's just, it creates unbalance. So even now that the church is only practicing monogamy in the mortal sense, um, you start your marriage off unbalanced with him having a sense that at the end of the day, 
he's the authority in the home and he can make the final decision. And your job is to certainly share your two cents with him. But when he makes the decision, you are to follow. That unbalance um, has created a lot of harm in my marriage. And I can only imagine the harm it's created in others and continues to create. And it's, and it's so interesting because, you know, with women's rights movement and today, like, you know, there are many Mormon kids today who are really going into the temple thinking we are going to have an equal marriage because, you know, maybe it's the woman who wants the career or, or whatever it is. And so we're starting to see these kids who are trying to have more equal marriages. And yet our temple ceremony is very much, you know, not allowing that. <laughs> not allowing that to happen without their consent. And they have no idea that they're walking into this kind of marriage that's not being set up that way. Yeah. And part of it's a mixed message, right? Like the temple is very, very different than the rest of Mormonism. Like you go to church, say you're a young kid, you grow up through primary, you grow up through young men's and young women's, and you step into the temple and that experience you you just don't see it coming. It's completely other than what your ward experience is. And you're unprepared for it. And even in these temple prep classes, it's almost like our job is to hint at what you're going to go through, but we're also just going to completely reserve from telling you fully what it is. And it's intentional so that you go in with some unawareness of what it is you're about to commit your complete fullness to. And and Mormonism in the temple requires you to commit your complete fullness to it. Um, And again, that creates unbalance as you go forward and try at some points in your life to be vulnerable and authentic. You also have in the back of your head like, oh, can I do that? Because I've promised to be completely fully given to this thing. And it's going to be hard to do both. If you, a couple years from now, let's say that you have an urge to attend a church or a religious community outside of the, you know, really solid, good group of friends that you have. I know, like uh, Thomas Montgomery, he uh, attends the open church where he has a lesbian pastor and he has felt a lot of healing there, or some people have felt healing going to the community of Christ or Gina Colvin is on her own spiritual journey. She was recently baptized, um, by a woman into another faith. If, do you have it, do you sense any pull in any direction that if you were to want to attend another religious community, um, where would you go? Um, so, in this journey, after the November policy from 2015, um, I gave the community of Christ um, some space for me to see if I had some relationship there, if, if that was calling me. And and I, I praised them up and down. This is not a negative on them. It simply didn't feel like a fit with me. Um, but I love everything they stand for, and I love the way in which they've clung on to a piece of Mormonism, but also chased down with no apologies the space for people to be authentic and vulnerable and real. Like they found a really good mix, um, but it just didn't call me. So I tried that for a few months and it just, it just, um, I want them to succeed here in Southern Utah, but it, it just wasn't for me. Um, I've tried some Buddhist things. I've tried meditation. 
Um, I've tried going to other churches. None of that feels quite right. Like I like meditation as a small piece of my life. It's not something I want to get up every day and do. Um, I, what I, what I would crave, and, and again, it doesn't exist really, unless I lived in like Denver, Colorado, where, um, Nadia Boltz Weber, uh, and her community is, if there was a church that said like, like, we're just going to honor the wisdom and mystery of the universe. And we don't need anyone here to impose any ground. Like, I think I could find a space there, but I'm in Southern Utah and and the closest I can get to that is like some uh, Episcopalian church, right? So it, there just isn't that kind of space yet in this place. So again, for me, I get fed that way, but it's outside of anything institutional. It can be a retreat a few times a year. It can be a group setting of meditation a few times a year. Um, but it's not a church. It's not an institution. And, and an institution that could satisfy me um, doesn't exist in the area that I live in. Um, so I want to talk about um, this nuanced place in the church because my faith transition was about seven years ago. And at the time, there were I, I found you just right after I had kind of gone through my faith crisis um, on my own, not knowing that anyone else had ever thought about these things. And there were people like you who helped me find a nuanced place in the church and kind of reconstruct my Mormonism and continue to be active. But since that time, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago, since that happened for me, I've watched John DeLynn be excommunicated, uh, you know, Gina Colvin, is attending another faith. Kate Kelly's excommunicated. You've recently taken a hiatus from the church. So, um, do you feel now, like when you started, you very much believed that you can nuance this and you can find a place to stay. So my question is two parts. Did you ever think at the beginning of this podcast that you would be where you are now? And do you think that this place that you tried to create where you can remain active and there's still a place where you can, you know, look at Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon from a place of faith. Um, do you think that place truly exists as I'm watching people who once were in that place eventually either grow out of it or be excommunicated? Do you think that place exists? And did you ever think that you would be here? So everybody who goes through this kind of faith transition, and we know them when we see them, we know them when we hear their stories, it's hard to say like, this kind of questioning and doubt really isn't this kind of questioning and doubt. But I think those of us who have been through this journey, we know it when we see it. Um, For those who have been on this kind of a faith transition, I don't think any of them maintain a public staying in that faithful ground unless the system rewards them dramatically for doing so. And the majority of people who are unrewarded by the system for holding that faithful ground tend to be moving a certain direction and that it's a, the trajectory may be slightly different and the pace at which they move is certainly going to be different from person to person. And I'm not saying that everybody ends out ends up outside the church, 
But it certainly if you were drawing arrows and pointing like orthodoxy one way and out of the church the other, we see which direction the arrow goes. Um, the question is like, can is there space to stay, and or is it inevitable that everybody ends up like those of us who are out? And I don't want to speak for anyone else's journey, but I so I can only speak personally and maybe speak about a few people that I know and well enough and watch their journey happen. But it feels like most of us start off in a space where. We know the church is good. We, we know this thing has some truth to it. And we're convinced that if we just raise our hand and someone gives us the space to talk, that we can tell the church like, hey, just so you know, you're doing this this way and it's hurting people. And you're doing this that way and it's hurting people. And I think you could do it better if you did these things. And and our thought is the church is good. It's going to be responsive to that. It's going to self-correct once it has the data. And so you live out the first part of this journey, like saying like, no, I'm going to stay here because this is going to get way better. And then somewhere along the way, you become, I don't know, you become hurt and you become affected by the realization, you could become affected negatively by the realization that, oh my goodness, this this place may not be good. This this thing, this machine may be unable to hear criticism. This machine may never make the changes you want it to make. And then you go even further where I woke up that morning, the morning I decided I wasn't going to go anymore. And I and I just it just hit me that yeah, I mean this thing will improve because that's just what's going to happen, but it's going to take 300 years to improve. And this isn't going to happen in my lifetime. And you suddenly recognize like, oh, this thing doesn't want to be vulnerable. This thing doesn't want to be a safe space to be face-to-face with its messiness. This thing doesn't want the intervention. And once you realize it doesn't want that, at that point, you're only banging your head against a wall. And again, I speak personally, and if anybody connects with this, great. If not, throw it out. But you bang your head against the wall, and you're like, oh, I'm only expending my own emotional energy, my own healthiness, in an effort to try to get this thing to see its unhealthiness. And it, you just realize like it's not receptive to that in the least degree. And the only way this machine changes is when it feels embarrassed, when it feels that others are looking at it with shame, and when when it senses its public image is being damaged. And so I felt like there was little choice. And I think most of these other people now would sense that too. Whether the church kicked them out or whether they left on their own, they sense like, yeah, this thing is not good. Uh, in the way that it needs to be good. This thing is not vulnerable. This thing is not authentic. This thing has no desire to be honest to its story. And for those who come to that realization, whether that realization is real or not, those who come to that realization, I think will all find themselves outside the church at some point, unless the system dramatically rewards them for staying in. Did you think when you started this podcast that you would ever 
uh, like if someone would have told you that your wife and your children would wake up one Sunday and, and not go to church? Did you see that as a possibility and a trajectory for your spirituality? Or did you believe that I, I can make this work? As long as I thought the church was good and would be receptive to critical feedback that was honest to its unhealthiness, I was adamant that there's no way in the world that I would ever end up outside this tribe. Like, this is my tribe, and yeah, there's some things that aren't good here, but there's no issue with making this work. And so I never, in the beginning of this podcast, I simply wanted to be a voice for people who were waking up to this and and trying to give them ways in which to stay in and because that's all I wanted to do. I wanted this thing to get better and I knew it would get better because I knew it was good and would be receptive. So I never envisioned myself outside the tribe. Um, it, it literally, I think the moment that light bulb came on where I said, this thing isn't good and this thing doesn't want to be vulnerable and it's going to shield itself from its unhealthiness with its membership forever was the November policy of 2015. It was like this moment in time where I saw the church completely act out of trying to protect itself, no matter what harm it would do to a human being. And it struck me like clearly that I'd never seen it before. It was like this new thought out there that I just plucked out of the air that this thing may not be good. And in fact, probably isn't good and will hurt others intentionally if that hurt protects itself from having to be vulnerable to its unhealthiness. Um, so no, I never saw my being out of the church probably until that November 2015 uh, policy came out. Interesting. Interesting. So to those who are still trying to n- trying to stay in for whatever reason, um, trying to find that nuanced place, trying to be that person that raises their hand so that others in the ward know that they're a safe place and all the things that you've been doing for years. What advice would you give to that person who's still trying to create that place? Um, First, be real to your situation. Some people have to pretend, otherwise their marriage comes to an end. Some people have to be silent because they're in the same ward as their parents. And I'm sensitive to the fact that every one of our lives, our experiences, our journey, while containing same, these same concepts, each of these are in operation differently. And so my advice, I'm even, I'm even hesitant to even give it only because for some it will be the, it will be bad advice and for others it will be great advice. Um, but what I would say is be sensitive to your own specifics of your journey. Maybe you can speak up. Maybe you can't. Maybe you speak up by sensing someone else in the room when they raise their hand. And after church is over, you call them and say, I know others in the room didn't like you saying that, but I loved that you said that. Maybe that's how you speak out. So you do it in your own way. And for some of you, you have to be completely silent. Um, Otherwise your life changes in ways that are not healthy changes that you want right now. And so you have to be just completely quiet. Um, I honor that as well. For those who are in a space where they can speak up and feel that risk is of worth, then be soft. Somebody once told me, and it's a wise voice. I can't remember if it's Brene Brown or Ken Wilber or Richard Roy. I don't remember who it was. 
But somebody speaks to the idea that you have a hard back, but you have a soft front. And what they mean by that is you have this hard back. You don't get pushed around. You hold the ground you hold. You have your inner authority. You know what you believe and what you stand for. You hold that. And you don't, you don't sacrifice that for anything. On the other hand, you have a soft front, which means that as you interact with people holding this firm ground, you do so with soft words. You do so not trying to create fights and contention, but instead to be a friend who's reaching out your hand. Um, and so when you operate within a Sunday school class, when you operate within a ward council, when you operate with, a, with your home teachers or as a home teacher or a visiting teacher or with your visiting teachers, that you do so recognizing like that's the space they hold and their ground is tender and they're looking for validation as much as I am in this other ground. Let me extend softness. Let me extend relationship and connectedness and, and see if I can navigate this space with them without trying to like walk in and wreck their world. Um, that would be my best advice only because anything else I think gets too specific and runs the risk of being bad advice to some that are listening. What spiritual practices, or if you don't like that word spiritual, you know, when you take your Sunday and you're with your family, I think you've talked a little bit about this, but what are the voices you've mentioned Brene Brown and what are the spiritual teachers or the practices that are filling you today? Um, what does your spiritual yeah. life look like today? Yeah, so it's full. Um, so let me talk about it generally first. Generally, I'm having spiritual experiences. I'm having the opportunity to wrestle with deep questions, both on my own as well as in community. Um, things that I do, I love podcasts. I'm a podcast junkie myself. Uh, I love any time that Richard Rohr is talking. That man is now one of my wise teachers. He's one of the people I allow to have some authority within my life because I know he speaks from a place of truth. Um, Rob Bell is another voice. And so I listen to the, the Robcast, which is his podcast. And he's another person with a Christian perspective. He values Christ, but in a different way, more of a mystical path and I value the wisdom that he speaks from. Uh, the Liturgist podcast is another one. Um, in my life, I deeply value the groups that I get together with, again, every weekend. I am with my friends, and my friends are in this space, and we are wrestling and exploring and discussing these big questions. And it feels like a spiritual experience, and it feels like a connection with whatever that bigger thing in the universe is. Um, I value deeply the sporadic get-togethers that happen perhaps quarterly in my life where larger group get-togethers happen and they happen around um, ideas like meditation, ideas like group and individual trauma and the discussion of those I find those to be religious experiences for me. Um, when it comes to my wife and my family, my wife is not as interested in some of those ideas. She's more into um, sitting with people one-on-one -on -one and hearing their story. Um, but if, I, if, if me and my wife come across a good video, for instance, on Facebook, we'll share it with our kids. 
if we come across a good book. Uh, just recently, I gave my son the, the Critical Journey by Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulich, which is a book I value deeply about development. And my son finally seems to be hitting this space where he's going to be able to understand those concepts. And so uh, my, my oldest kid, I give him that book and say, like, go read that and then come back and let's talk about this. Um, this past Sunday, going out and being with nature and whether it be a hike and looking at the petroglyphs of the ancient Native Americans from thousands of years ago and the things that they did in this area that I live in, whether it be to hike to the top of a volcano in southern Utah, whether it be to go out and stand by Quail Lake and dip our feet into the water, those all feel deeply spiritual. They, they feel like part of what I would call my church today. Um, so when you say, like, what's your spiritual path look like? Every day, I'm looking for some way to expand my awareness of others and their journeys and of the world and its mystery. Um, and, and I also want to add, too, while I'm open to Jesus not being what we claim him to be and still also holding space that on some level he may be exactly what we thought he was. In that kind of gray area of seeing both paradigms, um, I spend on a daily basis reflecting on Christ and thinking about what his, his narrative within the New Testament, what that means to me. And, and I still deeply believe in Scripture, even if I realize it's not literal and it's even imposed by people for, at times, unrighteous reasons, I still value deeply the scriptures. Um, I consider the Book of Mormon scripture, but I also consider, consider the Bhagavad Gita scripture, or the Quran scripture. And I recognize the value those sacred texts have to their communities, and I'm willing to open myself up to the truth that's in them. So I'm thinking about those kinds of things every day. As you probably know, I started a new podcast recently called The Mythical Jesus, and it's got about six episodes out, but I've recorded about 12 or 13 so far, and it's been a lot of fun to dive back into the New Testament and expose it in some new way that I don't think has ever been talked about before or utilized in this way, and I think it'll give listeners the chance to sense that I'm still deeply committed to Christ on a daily basis, even if that way in which I approach him is so not Mormon right now. Um, but there's some deep value in Jesus and who he was and what he stands for, regardless of whether he rose on that third day or not. And even if these stories aren't his literal stories, I think that book is put together with a ton of wisdom in application. And those kinds of things are worth my time on a daily basis. And I've seen that transition with how we view Jesus from from you and from from others who have kind of followed your trajectory um, of your faith journey, whereas, you know, at the beginning, maybe Jesus was, you know, the giver of commandments, and then maybe towards the end, still valuing Jesus because he's this um, compassionate, you know, loving person who exists at odds with his religious community. And that becomes that aspect of Jesus, that tension between him and the religious community um, can become such a valuable part of 
of what we can learn from Jesus when you find yourself in that place where you're at odds with your religious community. And I've, I've seen that a lot from, from you and others. I think it's interesting that when you give yourself permission to deconstruct your religious upbringing, your religious dogma and theology, I, I think it's interesting then once you've like taken it all apart and said like, oh, this doesn't mean doesn't mean near what anyone told me it had to mean. It gives you this like permission to go back into those stories and say, what do those stories mean now? What do they mean? And and just as we would give lip service, and I think and I think in a real way, as Mormons at an earlier stage, we would say like every time I read the Book of Mormon or read that passage in the Book of Mormon, it means something different and it applies to me differently. I think the same holds true when you disconnect on some level from Mormonism because you dive back into the New Testament. And now Jesus, if you say like, I don't care if he rose in the third day or not, that part of his story, I'm going to set aside and I'm just going to look at what he is saying in the context he's saying it. And what is he trying to tell these people? I think those takeaways are enormous and they're, they're void of the deep bias that you used to form these things with before. And so now they can be formed in new ways. And I think those connections can be like beautiful and bigger and more expansive than you had ever given them space for before. And isn't it so interesting that we talk about the Pharisees so much in church? Oh, the Pharisees did this and the Pharisees did that where, you know, even if Mormonism is what it claims to be, that means in this analogy we are the Pharisees, right? And yet we never talk about it in that way until you step out and say, oh, I was the Pharisee. You know what I mean? And we never talk about it in that way uh, when we're in Mormonism, but it's so easy to see, you know, once you leave. Yeah, I, th- I think and this is a side point. I don't know if this is directly related to what you just said, but we teach in Mormonism, for instance, that Satan is the f- father of, you know, these half-truths, these these lies. A half-truth is a lie, and it's one of the greatest tools that Satan uses. And, and then if we just take a step back and recognize that Mormonism implements and utilizes half-truths better than almost anyone, then we recognize, like, as Mormons, when we talked every Sunday about how Satan works and what he utilizes— only to now step back on this side of the journey and go, oh, as an Orthodox Mormon and as part of an institution, I was doing those things more than anyone. Like, I think it's, it's these layers of the onion that we, we have around ourselves that protect ourselves from being vulnerable. And once we see all these mechanisms, we recognize that we were part of the problem, even though we didn't see it in the moment. Um, I think we're doing... As Mormons, we're doing the very things that we're condemning the world for, and we do it as a natural part of our faithful, honored perspective at the time. So as we're coming up on two hours here, I just have, let's just do two more questions. Um, We talk a lot, you've talked a lot on this podcast um, about stages of faith and progression through faith models. And I just want to talk about, do you think that you would be where you are today with an independent, you know, rich, full life, spiritual life, marriage, family life, without going through some of these, you know, lower stages of Mormonism where, you know, you were a bishop and you were all in? And um, 
do you think that the church then still functions as a catalyst for this process of moving through the faith stages? Or do you think that it's so um, limiting as far as you're not allowed to go past stage three, that it is not um, a good catalyst for someone to go from stage one to stage five or six? So in my own journey, um, and I tried to give voice to this, like, my 17-year-old self benefited greatly from Mormonism. It saved me. It helped me to have the tools and resources I needed to be a productive adult. And I would have been less. I mean, people can say, how would you know? Maybe you'd have turned out fine anyway. I know with certainty I would have turned out less productive without Mormonism. <coughs> um, there came a point where as I began to move out of stage three and start to develop my own voice and my own authority and my own moral ground, that Mormonism lost its ability to be a net positive in my life. And I, part of what I th think you're talking to is that I have to give gratitude for the fact that an awareness of these stages of development became known to me, like just knowing this development existed as a model and having the ability and freedom to investigate faith and cognitive development was a huge impetus for my own growth. And being able to see in that developmental model an appreciation for the earlier stages and the fact that we really do carry those stages with us as we go, like we never fully leave ethnocentricity. I mean, look at your desire as a parent to protect your children and to sacrifice yourself on their behalf, and you're looking at ethnocentricity right in the face. So the, the recognition that we take those gifts with us, that we can look back with appreciation for what they did for us at an earlier time, while also maintaining the authority to put our foot down and say, but that doesn't mean that this is okay there's still something wrong here. Um, and maybe to develop another idea, if Mormonism did what it does from birth up until, say, 12 years old, and then at 12 years old, it began to do something different where it gave you a, a better model for how to live your religion within faith development, then you'd be looking at a healthier church and probably a church that most of us would have stayed in, in spite of the things that was still doing wrong. Um, so I think on some level, like we have to honor that at that earlier stage, this Mormonism does really well, except it just doesn't, it doesn't grow with you. And by not growing with you, you be, you have to either leave it or you have to stagnate. And I don't mean leave it physically. I don't mean you have to exit the church, but you have to exit like letting these men be your ultimate authority. You have to exit seeing these stories in literal ways. And and because the church doesn't grow with you, it, it compels you as you're growing to look back and say like, you've got to come along. You're doing something wrong here. You've got to come along. Um, I say all that to say like, I'm grateful for what it was in an earlier stage, but it is a net negative now. And that we ought to honor the good it was at some other place while still maintaining our hand up in the air that something's wrong here and now. Um, and to hold those two things 
as, like juxtaposed against each other and to hold those two things as a paradox as both true. Um, and I think a lot of people struggle to do that. They, they learn to hate the church and want to burn it down. Um, and they're, they're unable because of the harm and the toxicity that, that they ended up seeing and feeling to hold that other truth, which is that at an earlier stage, it, it did some good things for you too. Who was it? I think it was Richard War who said that, uh, you know, no one does first half of spiritual life better than Mormons, but no one does second half spiritual life worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that's so true that that identity phase, like we got it, like it's, we, we nailed it. And then second half of spiritual life, it's going to be a struggle, um, for as long as you, you know, continue to interact. If you're still growing, there's going to be a point where the church says, I can't go with you any further. Right. It lets go of your hand and it stops. And right. for you to grow, you have to keep moving along the path. And the scary thing is that it will tell you, and this is something that, you know, goes into the shame and guilt where, you know, when someone told me or when I read about faith, when someone told me coming out of my faith crisis, you know, seven years ago, that I had progressed instead of this idea in Mormonism where I had let go of the iron rod, it was just like I could finally like breathe. You know what I mean? Because the church will say, if you go any further than me, you've let go of the iron rod. And that just brings up the shame, you know. And for someone to just say, no, you're progressing, I, I just think there's so many Mormons who still are in faith crisis now who just need to hear, you know, you're progressing. And I think that your podcast has just done such an amazing job to reach those people. Right, that this is growth. And, and I think that what happens is that the religious authorities within the institution, they're at a certain space in development. And the only way that people are going to maintain loyalty and authority towards them is if they put their foot down and say, this mean, th- what this looks like, my life, my, my characteristics, my developmental ground I hold, this means you've arrived. This is the conclusion of the path. And when authorities set themselves up that way and they're really not they're not further ahead on the path, but they set themselves up as having, this is the place of arrival. You cause people to stagnate and you cause judgment to enter that says like, oh, anything that looks different than the life of these 15 collectively is a falling away. Um, the, The reality is it's hurtful and harmful for anyone to say, I've arrived. This is the ending space because we never arrive. Like the entire life is a journey of growth. And I've learned more things in the last year than I learned five years before that. And I've learned more in the last five years than I learned 15 years before that. Like the growth is exponentially growing. It's increasing. It's expanding. Um, We never should state we've arrived. And Mormonism does a really bad job of saying like, this is what arrival looks like. And anything that looks different than this must be a falling away. So tell us, what is the future of Mormon Discussion Podcast? Um, people have probably seen some of the things that we've, we're doing. We've created essentially an umbrella organization where we've opened up the podcast to other voices, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon Wellness Project, the Mormon History Podcast, um, Marriage on a Tightrope, which is a new one, which is doing fantastic with these others as well. Um, the Cognitive Dissonance podcast, which I host, and the new one I started, the Mythical Jesus podcast. Um, 
I've realized a long time ago that at some point I would have stages of burning out and then reignited, but that generally I would slowly burn out if this whole thing could only be kept alive by me putting an episode out every week or two. And so I came to grips that if this, this work is going to continue far into the future, that it needs to involve other voices. And so I've opened up this space to these other voices to say, like, help me. Like, you also reassure these people they're not alone, and you do it in your own way. And Radio Free Mormon was the first one to come aboard and just been just a fantastic podcast. Um, Mormon Awakenings is great. Wendy Perry and the Mormon Wellness Project, I think, is exceptional. The Mormon History Podcast. Skyler was on a little bit of a break with some things going on in his own life, but he's back in recording. Um, marriage on a Tightrope. I think there are so many mixed-faith marriages out there and such a needed space in the podcast world within Mormonism and I think they are hitting the proverbial nail on the head. Um, this conglomerate will allow Mormon discussions, which is now plural, to go long into the future. And so I hope listeners will be supportive of these podcasts, because as you point out, I think the, this voice, this space is so needed. Even my previous stake president acknowledged, he said, you're right, Bill, there's not a safe space inside Mormonism, in the institution, to have these conversations around this messiness and you and others like you are providing this space out in the social networking uh, venue. And so these things are crucial. Um, It used to be Mormon discussion leading with faith. And I hope the listeners have perceived that change. Um, You can lead with faith as long as the answers provide a faithful space And as I kept leaning into Mormonism and its messiness, it became less possible for me to see the conclusion as this ends up somewhere back in belief. And so the podcast has had to let go of that leading with faith moniker and and now tries to wrap more around searching for truth. And I think it's a more honest Pursual, no matter where you stand in the church, if you say, like, I'm going to search for truth, and wherever truth leads me, whether in the church or out, I'm going to follow the search for truth, that seems more authentic than I'm going to search for truth so long as it leads me staying in the church. Um, right, or this narrative, however I can fit it into this narrative. Right. So I th- if... Five years ago, I would have said, like, if I just keep doing this on my own, it's going to come to an end someday. I don't see myself as a 65-year-old podcasting. Maybe I do. Um, So the only way this thing survives is to bring in other voices. And so I think Mormon discussions will continue long into the future as long as I'm either healthy or somebody else is willing to pick it up if a time comes when I'm not healthy or I die. And I think it now has the ability to continue into the future what it looks like, like the money it brings in or the podcasters that are on it. All of those things may be different. So its level of uh, continuance may look different, but I'm okay with that. Like I think it does continue into the future again as long as I'm healthy or someone's willing to carry it on. Um, and And I hope... And I, get, I would welcome, if there's anybody out there who says, like, I'd like to do a podcast and I'd like to hold that faithful ground, um, 
by all means, you know, if you've got a voice like Jackson Washburn, for instance, or Randall Bowen, um, I would love a, a podcast on this conglomerate that represents that more apologetic but sensitive perspective. So I hope that those kinds of voices become part of this. I welcome that. I think it's important. I think it's important to give people all along that path different way stations at which to process these things. And I hope that's what the podcast is, is a way station and now multiple way stations to validate you and to slow you down enough that you process this stuff in a healthy way. That's beautiful. And I've appreciated at various parts of my journey, um, your voice and the voice of the other podcasters. Um, and yeah, different podcasts will help me at different times. And so it's been incredibly valuable for me. Is there anything else that we missed that you want to say to the listeners about your faith journey? Is there anything that we missed? I think the longer you're in this, the more important it feels to be authentic. And I was listening to a podcast this morning on the Tim Ferriss podcast, and he's interviewing a gentleman about uh, this kind of development, but not really putting it into like stage theory, but just talking about like awareness and how you change. And this this guy, I forgot what the guy's name was, but he's the expert on the show being interviewed by Tim Ferriss. And the, the expert, he says, the two things our brain wants is it wants uh, connectedness with others and it wants authenticity. And it will sacrifice authenticity in order to achieve connectedness and how that leads to us taking on trauma throughout our, our early developmental years. Um, as you grow older and that trauma builds up and each of us experiences that on some level, within us grows and to different degrees, but grows this need to say like, no, now I value authenticity more than connectedness, more than fitting in. And that becomes an interesting shift as we develop. Um, I would simply say to listeners, like, be, be sensitive to those shifts within you and what your body is telling you that it needs and to always operate from that place of being sensitive to what your body and your mind and your heart are telling you. And if, if you follow that with sensitivity, I, I think you'll come out the other side having done okay. I think that's beautiful and a, and a perfect place to end and what I really wanted to you know, to give space for, for the listeners today. So, uh, for myself and on behalf of all of your listeners that have followed your journey for years, we just thank you so much for being open and vulnerable and brave and courageous as you've tackled these things. And as you've shared your spiritual journey with us, um, because it really helps, uh, when you're alone and trying to navigate these things by yourself and trying to be more more vulnerable yourself to see someone else do it and to hear someone else's story. It gives permission and it gives space and it gives community um, in times where those things are lacking. And so we just appreciate you so much and just wish you uh, just the just the most joy and happiness as your spiritual journey continues. So thank you for this podcast, Bill. Thanks, Brittany. And thank you so much for your friendship. And I've just enjoyed this chance to kind of sit down and I think you're the perfect person to sit down with me and kind of ask this stuff just because we've, we, we haven't known each other up close, but we've known each other from, from a distance now for, for probably going on about seven years. All the pain 
is gone.